no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. I'm once again joined by my co-host, Ralph Bellavo. Ralph, how are you? I'm good. It's good to see you here. It's good for us both to be in the same room at the same time. I agree. It's harder to do these days somehow. I know. It's, it's The calendar keeps filling up quicker and quicker. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Hurting, yeah. uh, we're lucky enough to be joined today by Rick Dunham, who is a professor of multimedia journalism, also the co-director of the Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He's been the Washington bureau chief uh, for multiple publications, including the Houston Chronicle and Hearst newspapers, also past president of the National Press Club, the National Press Club Journalism Institute. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. This is a pleasure. Glad to be in Norman. It's it's great to have you here at uh, an auspicious time in terms of like the the global picture of things that are going on and how communication is working um why don't you can you tell us a little bit about the the program that you run over there so we so that people have an idea of what you're doing sure be glad to uh global business journalism is a two-year master's program taught entirely in english at Tsinghua university which is generally viewed as the top university in china and one of the top universities in asia uh, it's run through the International Center for Journalists, which is a nonprofit journalism organization uh, based in Washington with programs in more than 50 countries around the world. Uh, half of the students are Chinese and half of the students are international. Uh, international students, this year there are 18 first-year students from 13 countries, uh, 65 countries represented in the 13-year history of the program. So uh, we have students uh, from Europe, Africa, all around Asia, uh, Australia, uh, South America. So every continent but Antarctica. Well, that's unfortunate because there must be some <laughs> startling journalism going on there. Right, I exactly. Expect. I know. I know my students would like to go there to do some <laughs> environmental stories. Yeah, yeah. So how do you? So you have all these people coming in from like different contexts. When they come together, how do you acclimate them all to thinking about journalism and the way that you teach it there? It's true. It's it's and uh, I I should add that there are uh, veteran international journalists. Uh, there and uh, Chinese academics. So you have differences in in, uh, philosophies, differences in media systems. Uh, People, our our students come from different systems. I mean, Australia and Zimbabwe are very different. Uh, We've had uh, students from Israel and Iran. Uh, A a, a student from France is going to have a different uh, background than a student from Pakistan. And so uh, it really is a multicultural experience. For me as a reporter who covered politics in the U.S. for 35 years, it's fascinating because to me it's like having different sources with different points of view and you're trying to communicate with everyone. Uh, And uh, I think it works well in some ways. I consider it a little United Nations, except we all like each other. <laughs> I mean, in our in our uh, in our program, Israeli students and Iranian uh, students work together, uh, and uh, Indian and Pakistani students like each other. We did have a few problems with uh, 
Russian and uh, Ukrainian students the semester that uh, Russia occupied. Uh, oh, why am I doing that? Peninsula, mm -hmm. uh, but Crimea, uh, Crimea yeah. of course. Uh, but uh, but other other th other than that, we haven't had too too many arguments. But really, it's a question of uh, what is common in journalism, uh, which is the storytelling, and what is common today, which is telling the story on multiple media platforms. Uh, I mean, we train, we use international best practices. We are not censored, um, which is a small miracle uh, for the many people would consider in, within China. Uh, now, our students, when they leave the program, if they're in different countries, will have to operate within the systems. But the idea is to show best practices in telling stories to help our students understand the global economy as well as uh, as international, different international media systems. And you know, for me, having been in the American media system for so long, I find it fascinating to just try to, to understand the way young people around the world who tend to want to go into journalism for the same reasons as we do in America to make the world a better place operate within uh, the constraints and limits of their own countries. I have a question about the yep. technology of the program itself, right. thinking on a global scale. I noticed uh, you're uh, a pretty avid blogger, which I really appreciate. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I'm I'm so used to a U.S. context of the types of technologies that we have available. You know, and for a program like yours, it's sort of like uh, the technology is the curriculum, and the curriculum is the technology in a lot of sense for what you're doing. So, can you talk exactly. a little bit about maybe you know the the different technologies that are being utilized by students, uh, and, and and some of the tension that you've seen, whether it is in countries that may may or may not have access to certain tools. Well, yes, that that and that that is a good point. But let's start with the technology because I teach multimedia. We have several courses that deal with uh, data journalism. We're fortunate that Bloomberg News is a partner in the program, so we have access to the Bloomberg terminals. Even though Bloomberg.com is blocked in China, our students have access to the global stories that's of Bloomberg as well as all the uh, financial economic data that's available. Um, you're right about uh, about restrictions because China has a censored internet and so students to get to get certain information students have to figure out ways around uh, around the restrictions that exist good reporters find information uh, but you do have to realize that and other I mean other countries have different restrictions uh, and, and so I, I like to separate technology that's used for censorship or control from the technology that we teach uh, as reporting. And we just consider it very important to teach the students to communicate storytelling skills on whatever platform uh, their audience uh, wants to get it. So it's very important for them to learn podcasting, uh, to learn audio journalism, to learn how to do videos, to learn how to write not only a news story for print, but how you write separate, separately and differently for social media or for a blog. So I, I like to say we teach many different languages and not just hmm. the difference between English or Chinese or Russian or, or French. 
So one of the things I'd be curious about um, is the in in the U.S. we have this context where there's been a lot of controversy about the role of the media in relationship to the government, the way the government's certain right. people in the government talk about the media. I'm I'm because I really don't know. Is this something that's happening globally, or is this a a pretty regional kind of thing, or like what is the is media subject to the same journalism specifically subject to the same kind of skepticism in other places as well? Um, it varies by country, and in fact, I, I, I've looked the, the Reuters uh, Center at uh, University of Oxford in UK has done some excellent research. Uh, some countries are more trusting than others. So a country like uh, Finland or Denmark is very trusting of media. Uh, United States is toward the bottom. I think Greece is at the absolute bottom. Uh, not trusting, not trusting politicians, not trusting media, not trusting almost any institution. Uh, so it varies. I think that the issues in the United States are unique uh, on two levels. One is uh, the parallel media universes where we can't agree uh, very often on what the basic facts are. Uh, and the second is the Trump phenomenon and the idea of demonizing what's seen as the mainstream media or media that disagrees uh, with you or that uh, fact checks you uh, in ways that you don't like. That is really uniquely American. There's a lot of partisan media around the world. And in many countries, uh, news organizations have been this way for, for decades. In America, there was the concept of ob objective uh, news, uh, which some people argued was not objective. It, 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 it leaned to the left or leaned toward corporate interests. Uh, but there was a concept. And now I think that that's out the window. And uh, there's a revolving door between pundits and, uh, and, and news organizations, politicians, and, uh, and uh, columnists for uh, newspapers or, 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 or commentators for TV. So it's very confusing in the United States right now. Uh, that, and that's very different from, say, a country like China, where you have uh, state ownership or, or uh, Communist Party ownership uh, of much of the media, although there is... Uh, some that I call semi-independent, uh, but most of the media is has one one point of view, and that's a different world because people still want to go out and find information and find the truth, uh, but it's a lot harder to find the multiple points of view. Whereas in the United States, you hear so many points of view, the challenge for an average person is figuring out what's real, what's true. Yeah, often on the podcast we talk about media literacy uh, because of my dedication to that issue. Yes. And um, so the challenge, and I talk about this in my classes all the time, you know, how, how does a, a person who's in the public in, in a system like the American system sort it out? It's a lot of work to try to figure out. Yes. You I, know. I think media literacy now is more important than it has ever been, and there probably is less media literacy that than there has ever been. There, I, I, I tell students, I, I, mean, I, I, tell, I tell friends uh, in the United States, every citizen has to be like a reporter. I mean, when I covered Capitol Hill, I would talk to Democrats, I would talk to Republicans, I would talk to staffers, I would talk to reporters, and you would get different versions of reality. And it was my job as a reporter to try to provide context as well as, as factual information today it's the same for an average person and that's a lot of work mm -hmm. you'd like to go and you'd like to look on, on one website or pick up your newspaper in the morning or look at your favorite social media feed and say 
aha, this is truth. But you really can't do that very often. You have to have trusted sources, but you also always have to be a reporter and check several different sources to get different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this morning I noticed there was a story of uh, a quote from Lindsey Graham, supposedly, that he said something about along the lines of that Trump knows more about diseases than most of the scientists, blah, 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 which right. appears to be fake. It appears to be kind of a made up thing and not something he actually said. But yes. but now I have to, you know, and, and people keep on retweeting it and saying it's fake. But the retweeting, it's 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 funny how the technology that allows for this, it, it actually uh, allows for a great deal of fact checking if you're if you're right. honest more than it. ever. Yeah. But it also encourages this kind of distribution very quickly of things that just have no basis well, in the, reality. The problem is, and there have been some academic studies, that it takes a lot longer to get the facts to people than it is to spread the rumors. And, to, and this was part of the Russian strategy of the Russian military intelligence in 2016. They got a lot of disinformation out there, and then it was you, you were at a point where Hillary Clinton or Democrats or mainstream media were denying the rumors rather than the fact facts being what led. It was the rumors and then the denial of them instead of the truth. And I think this is a challenge. I'll give another example. Uh, when, when I'm teaching trade policy in China, there was a quotation that was shared on Facebook attributed to Sarah Palin saying, the United States could uh, reduce the trade deficit with China if Americans stopped eating Chinese food. Okay, sounds funny, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a great it's a great quote. I don't know if it was true or not. I didn't share it except with my students as a discussion mm -hmm. uh, of of how rumors go on the internet, because you can confirm almost anything on the internet, whether it's true or false. And so this was one of those situations where okay, sounds like she might have said it, but it's also possible that it was either made up or it was. From us, from from one of one of the the uh, many many uh, parody sites out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was actually a story this morning, uh, ironically enough, about Chinese restaurants' business dropping precipitously. And that's a real story. Yeah. That's a real story. It's a sad story. The two stories that I consider really interesting business stories that are s sad commentaries on life are the Chinese restaurants in America, particularly in Chinatowns, that are suffering. The second is, and I've seen this both in Chinese media and in America, is Corona beer. Yes. <laughs> People in China are not buying Corona beer. Mm -hmm. And I think it may be Miller, the Imbev, South African-based, yeah. own, owns it. And so Corona is now distributed all over the world. It's not just near the Mexican border. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it, I mean, according to these stories that are anecdotal, it's pretty serious everywhere, whether it's in the U.S. or in China. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really unfortunate thing when you have this piece of intellectual property and it's actually causing the demise of your brand. Right, you know, exactly. I want to sink into that a little bit. So I think there's so many different directions we can go talking about the the coronavirus, and I think it's helpful to to say on on record that we're doing this on Monday, March second, twenty twenty. You know, and I'm I you know personally I'm going to to try not to talk about you know where things are right now just from a fact of. Uh, it it you know, it will change today, uh, but there there are some pieces that you know that that's worth looking at <clears throat> uh, on there. Um, I guess the, the 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 first direction that I feel uh, we can we can go is talking about the media itself, and I'm trying to personally understand in my own bubble 
I'm starting to see criticism about, well, the media is blowing this out of proportion, whether that's because that's, you know, something that's been tied to the, a quote of the president. But I also just hear this from people, you know, talking about this, of how it raises anxiety. And myself, I feel like I've got a little bit of a, of a biasness towards, well, it's not you, you can't blame the media for doing doing their job either. Where, where, do, where do we find balance on the role of right. the media in these types of uh, global pandemics? I've lived this story from the beginning. Because, uh, because of Wuhan and China and then my uh, classes, my school being shut down and classes being held remotely. Uh, whenever I hear the media this, the media that about America, my immediate response is, what media? Right. Media is more fractured than ever before. Uh, I think we can do some generalization, but I think it always is dangerous. And I mean, I have my own personal critique of the media. I'll try to give you the short version, uh, which is many newspapers have done an outstanding job. I mean, newspapers of, of national and international significance, particularly, I think, the Washington Post and the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, which is, which, which is not censored, uh, have done an outstanding job of facts and context all through. Uh, I think the BBC has done a very good job. I think Associated Press and Bloomberg News have done a really good job of facts, of doing analysis of the economic impact, uh, keeping things in context. When I came back to the United States, uh, well, it was, I, I was here at the beginning of the, uh, of the out, outbreak in China, uh, but uh, I saw the coverage on network TV and cable news as sensationalistic, as basically oversimplified, and I call the general theme, we're all going to die. And, uh, and I, I, I think that it's just n news in America, whether network news, sadly, uh, with the exception of, of uh, PBS, and uh, the cable news in particular, wants to grip you with fear, whether it's fear of the socialists or fear of the Trump people. Um, and in this case, it's fear of a disease spreading, a virus spreading. There are risks. I mean, I know this from being in China and studying this so carefully. There are risks of this virus. It's more deadly than the flu, even though it's not as w widespread. We don't know so much about the transmission. We don't know I mean, there are people who don't show symptoms who apparently have passed it along to others. We don't know if it can come back. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of things we don't know. The Chinese government has not helped by keeping out a lot of international experts and bottling up information within China. I mean, ironically, we're going to find out more now that it's spread to Iran and South Korea and Italy, uh, and, and it's spreading slowly in the United States. Uh, we will learn more about this. Uh, the other problem is there is no shot that someone can take uh, to uh, either protect them or to, quote, cure it. So there are reasons that we should be cautious. But I think that Americans are reacting like there's a hurricane that, that's about to wipe out the entire country. We don't need to buy up all masks. We don't need to buy up bottled water. Uh, we just need to be informed, and I think the most important thing that the government can do right now is to give honest, direct information. 
Uh, I was talking to a friend, and we need someone like Dr. Koop, who during the Reagan years uh, was the Surgeon General, and in, in, a, in a time that was quite partisan, uh, he was considered a reliable, nonpartisan, uh, reasonable voice. We desperately need someone like that. I think Dr. Fauci, uh, who is an expert on communicable diseases, could be that person. I think it's a big mistake if the uh, government tries to gag at scientists uh, to try to prevent them from saying embarrassing things. I think it's important to have truth, and most importantly, important to have context. And I think that the, I think that the television media really needs to think about this. They have a public responsibility, uh, not just for ratings, but in this case, for information. I think it, just as just as they believe it's important. And it is important to uh, be a truth check on public officials. They also have a responsibility to be responsible uh, in, in the coverage so as not to unduly alarm people. I think there's reason everybody should be alert. But at this point, there's not reason to be alarmed. And even if it spreads like in China, uh, I know there are a lot of people of my friends and colleagues who are who are uncomfortable with being quarantined, but there is much less panic in China than I've seen in the United States uh, among friends and especially by looking looking on the news shows, television news. Do you, <clears throat> do you think that it has any, that, that those differences uh, have much to do uh, by the difference of a uh, state-ran or state-mediated media versus uh, the kind of media that we have, and I'm asking that as, as know, knowing your, uh, you know, how, how much you know about business in yes, general, yes, yes. right? That we have an imperfect market, and and that we might see media organizations like cable companies that have attention that that they they do feel like they have to chase ratings because they do think of themselves as a business, and they are a business. Uh, there is a there there is a, there is a difference. Uh, I don't know if having state-owned media alone is a difference because at the bottom line is credibility. And if people don't believe the state-run media, they're going to be looking for other sources of information. And, and in that vacuum, there are a lot of rumors as, as well. I think the problem with the uh, right now with the American uh, television media system in particular uh, is the, uh, part, the partisanship and, and uh, the lack of agreement on issues. I mean, is this a global pandemic or potentially a global pandemic? Or is it a plot by the mainstream media and and irresponsible Democrats to destroy the reelection hopes of Donald Trump? I mean, I, I say my, my students around the world laughed, I mean, I'm sad, sad to say it this way, laughed when they heard that uh, Donald Trump was talking about this as some sort of a conspiracy because they see it as a dangerous di dangerous disease and dangerous virus that's uh, killing people and that, that it wasn't planned to disrupt Donald Trump's reelection. But again, within the American media context, uh, the debate is very is very different. And I, I think it's it's it to, to Vir talk. viruses don't know partisanship, right? That's correct. That's <laughs> my that's my point. Yeah. I think we're wasting time. It's just like when we're talking about about climate change. 
we're wasting time if we're t if we're having these kinds of debates. What we want to do is have practical debates in both cases on what do we do about it. Yeah, it becomes kind of this kind of you know again literal on the top of it irony because then that discussion becomes the virus, right? The discussion becomes the people who are. Um, you know, heard what Trump had to say about it, and then are kind of supporting the idea. Then they shift it to say, "Well, the conspiracy isn't the disease; the conspiracy is the way disease is being treated in the media." That's correct, right? And then you know, so then that becomes kind of the echo chamber factor there. And it's not productive. I mean, it's not getting us anywhere. All it's doing is keeping everybody angry. And I mean, in the seven years I, I have been out of out of the U.S., I've been mean, living full living most of the time outside of the U.S., that's a big, the biggest difference I see, just the, the level of anger uh, as a result of, uh, of news and information. I call it heat rather than light. There's mm -hmm. a lot more heat in, the, uh, in media coverage, and it's aiming at, at stoking the anger to keep people angry and watching. Uh, I think it's I think it's a cycle, but uh, I mean, I hope we're toward the end of this cycle, and it's, it's and and it's not something that's going to be living on for ten more years. Do you just from your perspective, having come from what I would normally call the legacy journalism world, yep. and now you're in the digital journalism right, world? Exactly. Do you think the fact that the, does the digital journalism world have the capacity to? I the way I think about it is it's sort of like slow down read in some depth, right? You have access to tools to confirm this. You have access to, more access to better journalism than anyone in history ever has. Ever. Right? More, more information, more good information. Mm -hmm. So does, can, can is, it, is it the way people consume the digital and like become unaware of how it's stoking their anger? Or is there, is that just kind of a function of the, you know, 24-7 digital environment? Do you I, think? Th I, think, I think it is a function of the technology and how we get the information <laughs> driven by social media, driven by, for older people, more by uh, television news and, ca and cable news. But it's interesting that the legacy media, I mean, the top news organizations, uh, become part of the discussion. I mean, an article that is in the New York Times or Washington Post will then be commented on in social media but it's n it's not the original information; it's the commentary of people, which is almost always an opinion of it uh, that that gets out there. I mean, this is the time really when we need the Walter Cronkite or the couple of newspaper newspapers with national reach that are trusted by a great majority of people. But it's it, the reality is that's not that's not where we are, and. Uh, I mean, I would hope that people can step back, whether it is a Sean Hannity or a Rachel Maddow. I mean, everything that Donald Trump says is not wrong, and everything that hurts Donald Trump is not a conspiracy of the of the enemies. And and I I really will be interested because I think this is a good test for the people who are 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 the biggest flamethrowers in in the information uh, world. And uh, I mean. I'm hoping if it does get more serious that 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 we can have some unity. I thought the most optimistic thing this week was Vice President Mike Pence talking to Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, about what can we do in a bipartisan way to address this. Mm -hmm. Instead of Democrats just saying whatever Donald Trump's asked for is not enough and, and uh, Donald Trump saying that they're out to get me, 
uh, to use to use this to defeat me. Mm-hmm. There was one there was one picture that was kind of telling, and I'm mentioning it because this would be of, of specific interest to you because of the things you're interested in. And it was a picture of Pence with the people who were talking about how to respond. Right. And it was a table full of men. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I yeah, this is one of those things. My my Chinese students say the same thing because you had. Donald Trump and his administration meeting with the Chinese leaders, and the only there was only one woman. It was a tra- a, a translator uh, for for uh, the American side. It was the only woman uh, in the uh, in the room, and yes, this, this this is over and over and over again. Uh, the images are there of uh, of men of men talking. Uh, I mean, the, the joke in China is the old white men, uh, meaning the, the Chinese men, uh, the same way as the old white men of, uh, of the United States who are, uh, who are at the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's especially, for my students, it's especially uh, noteworthy because three quarters of them are women mm-hmm. uh, from around the world. And, and a majority of the people who are being hired in journalism to the entry-level jobs are women, and uh, and yet, in, for many governments around the world, I mean, I mean, through I mean, beyond beyond any kind of political system, it's men at the table, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, this this really doesn't have anything to do with journalism. Uh, directly, it has to do with uh, the, pe- the people who are making the decisions. But uh, the world is—it's interesting. The world is changing, and yet the people in the photos tend to be the same old people. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I thought that was one of the interesting things you wrote about on your blog was about um, how the industry is is reacting to this, and that there right. really needs to be actually more aggressive incorporation of women into decision making. And yeah, so. I, I gave as uh, as a commencement speech. I, I talked about uh, women in in uh, in journalism because, and I mean, at my university, we're rather fortunate. Our executive dean is a woman. My co-director is a woman. Several of the associate deans are women. That having been said, I mean, about eighty percent of the Communist Party in China is men. It's by invite only, and uh, and people invite people like them. And it's very much like in corporate America where uh, the people who are the successors to today's CEOs come from the same general pool. Uh, And you have to be much more conscious of it, particularly when society is changing, but also your industries are changing. Uh, And in the media industry all around the world, but I I will say in the United States, there are not nearly as many women in leadership positions as there as there are in newsrooms. Mm-hmm. It's changing. I mean, my former newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, had a dynamic woman, Nancy Barnes, who was the editor in chief, and she's now uh, at NPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and there and there are some women as publishers, but the vast majority of the people who are uh, who are heading up these giant chains that are gobbling up papers are men. I rarely see women quoted in these stories about setting the directions for the future of journalism. Mm-hmm. It's, al- it's almost all uh, men, and many of them are hedge fund types rather, th- rather than people with any real knowledge of, of the news business or of, of, communi- of the communications industry broadly. Mm-hmm. 
So I, just a on a just on a personal note, if you don't mind my asking, because I'm always curious about this, since you are stuffed full of knowledge about this industry, what's your daily routine? How do you read into the day? What do you do? Well, it, and and some of this will have to do with uh, being outside the United States, mm-hmm. but uh, I have a few what I would call trusted news outlets that I I read regularly from website. So. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and then and uh, BBC, AP, Reuters app. So some of these are some of these I I, I do as news apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, then newsletters. Newsletters have become more important to me, particularly Axios. Hmm. Okay. Ax- Axios, as as someone who's very busy and a news consumer, Axios.com has excellent newsletters both in general and specific information whether it's technology or the media industry or energy uh, whatever it is you're interested in and you can get a fill and there's a china they have a china newsletter too so i like that i like the wall street journal newsletters uh i mean i try to read across uh across interests then I say I have my sports page ESPN because I have to find out from a distance what's going on. What am I missing? Uh-huh. Since since that I'm not I'm not going to find that on uh, in the New York Times or BBC. Uh, and and then social media. I call uh, Facebook my feature section because it's basically what my <laughs> friends are up to. Uh-huh. Some lifestyle uh, things and Twitter and Twitter. I, I I have unfollowed a lot of people who I. Yeah, even though they have a lot of followers, uh, if they if they are just into giving opinions, I want people who will post important stories, interesting stories. You can find breaking news all the time, but but it's it's really good journalists. So Karen Tumulty from the Washington uh, Post is is one example like that, or. Uh, Matt, Matt Lewis, who's, who is sort of a, uh, an unpredictable conservative. Uh, I, mean, I, 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 I have several dozen people I rely on uh, and across the political spectrum because I still, I still want to get information uh, from a wide variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And so it's a mix. You can see it's not easy. When, when I started at Business Week in 1992, we had six newspapers delivered, and so every morning I would go in, I'd look at the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today. That was how I started my day. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's really up to me, and it's very different because uh, I do a little website browsing, I do a little social media browsing, and then stuff comes to me through the newsletters. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has to... F- Find the mix that they want. What's lacking here is local news. You see, right. that's the problem. That's the problem for the local newspapers because I don't have in my mix anything that gives me local news from my hometown community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if people care about the local news, they have to figure out what is the trusted local news source and add that to the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to figure yeah. out what's what's actually in touch with the community. I'm, I'm finding. Uh, we have a next door site. I don't know if you're participating. Yes, in I, I have one of those in Arlington, yeah. Virginia, where I live. It's a, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it gets yep. 
kind of wacky sometimes. Exactly. And, and I've actually found in my little small one that's in Norman, Oklahoma, some things that are suspiciously bot-like activity, yep. where it's like, you know, basically images stolen from other places and people who are just stirring up controversies. But it's but it's also really interesting to see what issues are significant to people through that. Right. And, and to me, there could be a reinvention of local news. I mean, the, these kinds of sites, the challenge for, for us as professional journalists is that they don't really rely on professional journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's whether you call them citizen journalists, just local local people uh, uh, posting, posting content or giving opinions. But to me, it's a good source of news. Mm -hmm. The question is, if I want to reinvent local news to serve a local community as the newspapers have fewer and fewer people, I'm not sure how I build it uh, because this th this is a good format, but it's not really the journalism. There, I mean, you, there, there's a lot of exchange of opinions, but there's not much oversight in it mm -hmm. uh, of the kind of oversight journalism that makes for really good local news. But yeah. but it is something that I read, and and I do I do get that by email. So I guess I should include that along with Vox mm -hmm. from in my news sources. Yeah, it was interesting. There was a, a conversation. This was many years ago. I think this was when David Simon was maybe finishing up with The Wire, where he was yep. being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And David Simon talked at length about his concern for the collapse of local journalism, which right. has only accelerated since then. And he said, if this collapses the way it's going to, it's going to be a golden age of local corruption. It's just yes. going to be unbelievable. Exactly. There's, I, I mean, the, my example is uh, I knew the people at the San Diego Union Tribune who uh, wrote the story, the stories about Duke Cunningham, the congressman who from San Diego who had a menu of bribes on a napkin. And they won the Pulitzer Prize. He was convicted, sentenced to prison. They were laid off. Their bureau was shut. Uh -huh. So I, I say, what about the next Duke Cunningham? I mean, they did a really good job. They, they, they. Well, I think the next Duke Cunningham was just sprung from prison in Illinois. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> kind of, I'm from Illinois originally, yes. so that was always we had, there was a, there was a time when we had more governors like in prison in uh, Illinois than actually retired. So. That is that is yeah. true. But the, 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 what's interesting in, in Illinois and Blagojevich is. At least there, you had good old-fashioned wiretaps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was that was old-fashioned, uh, old-fashioned yeah, like detective actual, work. Actual, actual verbal. Right. Right. I mean, I, and and uh, but 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 with Duke Cunningham, it took the reporters doing that. I mean, doing the detective work mm -hmm. that would not. I mean, probably would not have come out without them. And and the most recent congressman who've been indicted. Uh, I mean, with the exception of Congressman Collins from Buffalo, where the Buffalo News and Jerry Zremski played a very big part in it, uh, most of them have been prosecuted through through uh, law enforcement, and then the reporters covered it, as opposed to the reporters breaking the story and then law enforcement coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the most striking, and I'm sure that you still pay a lot of attention to NPR, but they're consistent coverage of the education department's treatment of people who the loan forgiveness program yes. mm -hmm. I think that's I mean just as sort of like an example of extremely important journalism when people are kind of sticking to the story and, and following up without it ever really being I mean it ends up being on the radar for other news organizations after NPR has kind of like tracked the story right there are a few stories where 
one media organization is so dedicated to it that eventually others come to it. I mean, the Miami Herald and Jeffrey Epstein was another example mm-hmm. like that. But I mean, sadly, there—I mean, there are always examples, but there are many fewer than there used to be mm-hmm. of, of of these because many fewer news organizations are doing it, and the ones that are doing it are doing it less frequently. Mm-hmm. I mean, even a newspaper like my old newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, has excellent investigative reporting. Every few months, there's a major story that's broken. But ideally, you want to break a major story every couple of weeks, not every mm-hmm. couple of months. And it's just that there are not the people out there uh, building the sources. They're not, they're not the people given time for investigative reporting that there used to be. A, a lot of the best newspapers have an investigative team, but it's many fewer people, and usually there's more pressure on them to uh, – complete their investigations sooner than the olden mm-hmm. days. Well, also given the intersection that you're at, I'm, I, I've just been, you know, I, I don't follow this, you know, as much as I should, but every time I see Gatehouse pop up, right, right. Gate, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in what you think about that, maybe if you could kind of give a little explanation of what Gatehouse has been doing and where they're at in terms of the process of the kind of consolidation that they've been doing. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to say it is a bad word, but the word that is most often used is bottom feeders, uh, that they come in and uh, and buy at fire sale prices, buy distressed publications or chains, and strip assets. I mean, the latest has been, I mean, I, I, I have friends who run a community newspaper project in West Texas. And they just had a conference a couple of weeks ago, and one of the editors from small town Texas was fired by Gatehouse. I mean, they, they are getting rid of the editors. Mm-hmm. They're, instead of the, they're, they are operating with regional editors. So instead of a community having even an editor of the paper, they just have a reporter. And, and there may be one regional editor for five or six newspapers in a state. So what they are doing is putting out products, newspapers, at very low cost. Because in, 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 in newspapers, uh, two major cost centers, one is production and distribution and the other is staff. And, uh, and if they're going to keep printing the newspapers, uh, they can't cut the cost that much, but you can cut people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the on the production side a lot of what's happening is copy editors are being combined and so yeah the the editor i think i may be wrong i hope not wrong st louis post dispatch but copy editors uh are are working out of uh illinois out of the the uh sort of a a a central location Mm -hmm. instead instead of having as many people in the old newsrooms uh so gatehouse can be profitable uh, I mean, the, the idea is if you lower costs enough, you can make a profit. The question is, can you ever build a community? Can you, I mean, you are managing decline. Uh, I mean, you're, you, you, rather, rather than building something that has a business model to succeed in the future, you can, in, in the news business, you cannot cut your way to prosperity in the future. You can only cut your way to manage decline. You can mm-hmm. keep it profitable, but you're never going to build a community by giving people a product that gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it's kind of like, interestingly, like the illusion of local 
media when it's not. Right, right exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been there. There are very various descriptions that that I've heard. Uh, ghost ghost newspapers, mm-hmm. zombie newspapers. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that 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 sort of the, the living dead are are there, and and it is in a lot of ways. It is there. There is illusion of uh, to. I mean, to make it seem like it's a a daily newspaper, and I'm not criticizing the very hardworking reporters who survive, and they have enough survivor guilt as it is that they have their jobs while all their friends, former colleagues have lost lost theirs. Uh, I mean, by the time I left to to become a professor, I felt I was doing three and a half full time jobs mm-hmm. because we just the the demands of a multimedia and digital world were getting larger and larger and our staff was getting smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and there are two things you can do i mean you can take on multiple jobs uh or you can stop doing certain things right yeah and both are happening mm-hmm. well on that happy note i think we'll bring our conversation <laughs> to a close <laughs> unless there's anything that's an, a bright spot you'd like to add at the tail end i want to say, i want to say one bright thing okay. which is the students, journalism students today, are so good. They're so dedicated. They're going into this without illusions. And they have skills in multimedia storytelling that nobody has had in the past. So I hope I hope that people who run news business can figure out a way to make it economically yeah. sustainable because well, it seems there's like, a lot of talent. Yeah, the criticism of the industry has actually fired them up. I mean, it's been it's exactly. really interesting to see that. That's what I'm saying. The stu- this, I, I have nothing but praise for the journalism students of, of today. I just hope we can give them a world in which they can earn a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, thanks for coming in and taking yep. the time to talk to us. Really appreciate it. And uh, for Adam Kroom, this is Ralph Bellavo, and you've been listening to Media and the End of the World.